welcome back to more of a comment than a question. I am Paul Connor, uh, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm here with uh, my co-host and friend, Rachel Hartman. So Rachel, she is a graduate student who does research, uh, which, as we've all learned this week, basically just means masturbating <laughs> constantly <laughs> and furiously. So Rachel, how's that going? <laughs> um it's it's great um <laughs> yeah that was that was all right i guess as as far as intros go um it's better than my intro from last time so i'll give you that uh i don't do qualitative research or ethnographies or whatever he was Not calling that autoethnographer so. Everybody does qualitative research. We just don't <laughs> yeah, it's nothing to be yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, anyway, so that was actually one of. So I've I've formulated quite a few jokes about this situation and and then deleted them. Um, and and one of them was like. Um, I'm just sitting here imagining what my H index could be if I knew about autoethnography as a teenager. <laughs> Nice. Other, yeah. Um, but anyway, like, let's get on with it because we have a guest. We have a lot to talk about. Um, welcome back to the podcast, Professor Chris Ferguson. Uh, good to have you back. You're out the second person who's been on twice. Oh, sweet. That's awesome. Well, it's always great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes. You're now tied with Nicole Barbaro. Barbaro, oh, she, Barbaro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not um, on twice. I still don't know how to pronounce her name <laughs> properly. Oh, Manny was on Bar twice. Barbero. Sorry. Manny was on twice, as was I before I was uh, you know, co-host. So Yeah, yeah. I think I've this blocked is, out. Yeah, Manny. misinformation, <laughs> fake news. But uh it's blocked great out to Manny's appearance. The second good guest who's been back. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um no, Manny's fine. Uh, yeah, so Chris, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Good to see you. How are things? How are things in Florida? Oh, Florida's amazing. Yeah, I love I love Florida. Yeah, so I think things are good. The summer break is just ending. So uh, other than rending my clothes and gnashing my teeth and being in tears for the end of the summer, you know, vacation, things are things are pretty good. So we we've got a bunch of things we wanted to talk about, but uh, first and foremost, we should discuss your book, Chris, because. Um, Somehow, even though you were just on the podcast promoting a different book, you've managed to write a new book in addition to blogging and producing academic research and seemingly spending most of the day on Twitter <laughs> arguing with people. First, so first of all, like, what the hell? Like, you're just making everybody else feel uh, unproductive and stupid. Uh, so thanks for that. But like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about this new book. Like, what what's it about? What made you write it? How did yeah. you write it so quickly? <laughs> yeah, sure. So that's funny you mentioned people being stupid. I mean, actually, the book is about people being stupid. That's <laughs> really what it is. Yeah, so it's catastrophe, and it's yeah, the psychology of how good people make bad situations worse. So it's pretty much what it, it says on the tin. You know, I was really getting curious um, I mean, a lot of it was inspired, I think, by just watching the last 10 years, you know, some and watching people I knew, respected and liked over <laughs> the last 10 years and watch their brains melt. <laughs> and it's kind of yeah. like, you know, I, I think I had this revelation of, of, you know, in a general sense of, and I don't know how else to put it other than thinking like, 
wow, people are a lot dumber than I thought they were. They were. And I, I'm not excluding myself from it, by the way. You know, so I don't mean that in um, a narcissistic sense, but more like, wow, like the way people think is very different from the sort of mostly rational way that I thought people kind of processed information and made decisions about how to behave and this sort of stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't know if things have just gotten worse or just more visible because of things like social media. I, I don't know, but it really started to fascinate me both in terms of like micro decisions, like why would, you know, someone engage in the same obviously failing behavior over and over and over and over again, just in their own personal lives or in their professional lives. And, and I opened the book with the story about the, the French airliner and the pilot who kept pulling the plane up over and over and over again, even though that was clearly not helping. So why would you do that instead of trying something different? Um, you know, and, and I think in some respects, I've caught myself doing the same thing. Thankfully, not at the helm of an airliner, but, you know, like pushing the ignition on my car when it won't start and thinking, well, if I just keep pushing it it'll eventually start, you know, and clearly it's broken, um, you know, so, but also like these big sort of macro things of, you know, why are we experiencing these, you know, societal meltdowns on both left and right, you know, why do people have so much difficulty understanding that the other side, put that in air quotes, you know, isn't all wrong and our side isn't all right. And, you know, so I just really kind of wanted to explore why our decision-making tends to be a lot less rational than we mm. would like to think that it is. And mm. by understanding that, perhaps have some idea how we can maybe move past that and make better decisions either as individuals or as societies or cultures or, or what have you. So kind of a long-winded explanation for it. But the short version is why are people dumb and how can we help them not be quite as dumb? Uh, but that's a longer version of, of, uh, of, of what it is. So. so your book is called Catastrophe. Um, and it kind of, it does like go into some of these big things that are, you know, seem to be going in a bad direction, like uh, climate change um, as an example, or COVID-19, but I was hoping you could, um, kind of like explain like how you're defining catastrophe, like, and how you more like how you chose those topics that you chose to include in the book. And like, do you see them all as being catastrophic or is that a, a bit of <laughs> hyperbole perhaps and uh, maybe some concept yeah. creep? I mean, I think in this case, you know, I would think of a catastrophe as basically working towards a goal and making decisions that achieve the opposite of what that goal was and keep making decisions that continue to make uh, the outcome the opposite of what the goal was that you you wish to you know, be. So that could be everything from as simple as and, and I, I will use the example myself doing some of these things of, you know, convincing yourself that the lightning storm really isn't that far, you know, that isn't really that close yet when you hear the thunder and you're in the pool, you know, uh, for instance, you know, so saying, eh, what, you know, I counted, you know, 15 seconds between the, the, the lightning strike and the thunder. So it's 15 miles away. I'm safe, you know, which could be a catastrophic decision if your goal was to not be electrocuted in your pool, uh, for instance, um, you know, all the way through, you know, I'm concerned about, climate change and let myself let me glue myself to a road and that will convince people somehow that you know they should do more to fight you know combat change when in uh, or to, to fight climate change excuse me and in fact that actually 
accomplishes much the opposite of that by losing people's support, um, you know, in your goal, in your goal. So, I mean, that's kind of like the thing that, you know, fascinates me is that sometimes when we're sort of removed from these processes, it's very easy to see someone engage in a behavior and recognize that it's counterproductive, right? You know, we can see this in our like romantic relationships. We probably all have that friend who's broken up and gotten back together with the same person like 23 times. And they think like the 24th time is going to be the charm, you know, uh, the lucky one there, you know, so why, do, you know, why do people do this, you know, and, um, and, and why do they persist in making decisions that are making themselves miserable that are making others miserable that are actually working against whatever goals they're trying to achieve and just seem to have so little insight <laughs> you know, sometimes into how that is, uh, you know, how that is functioning. Um, so as far as the, you know, the topics, I mean, you know, I, I kind of, you know, uh, I mean, to be very honest, I really kind of picked the ones that seem to be kind of looming in public, con or at least in my con my idea of what public consciousness was, you know. Um, so some of the examples or some of the issues are relatively, you know, personal macro or micro sort of examples like the airplane pilot who crashed his plane or uh, the people who, you know, decide that, you know, uh, hiding under a tree during a lightning storm is a good idea or the fellow who ran back into a burning building to get his guitar you know, so, you know, why do people kind of make these sort of like micro, again, when I say dumb, I don't mean they're dumb people, but, you know, that these are obviously, you know, really, really bad decisions that we should have known better than to do, um, you know, but also, you know, some of the big issues that are prevalent today, you know, whether that is climate change or sort of race and policing um, or, you know, the January 6th whatever the hell we want to call the th that thing that happened on January the 6th, you know, conspiracy theories and, and all this and all this kind of stuff, you know, why does it seem that people, you know, persist in these behaviors, despite the fact that you can present them with evidence or information or counterexamples that ought to conflict with what they think is working. Um, if you just kind of point out that it's not working, they get very defensive about it and, and uh, you know, refuse to change. And, and in some ways, I, I find that fascinating. And again, I don't, hold myself above any of that stuff. I think I do it as well as anybody else does. But I do find that process worthy of exploration and trying to understand how we can maybe learn from it and make better decisions. Yeah. Do you think, so you um, have done a lot of work about uh, violent video game, violent video games, violent media. Uh, and if there's one thing I see you tweet about a lot, it's it's just trying to dispel the notion that there's strong evidence that these things are harmful. So this is like, but this was, this has been going on for a long time, right? Like yeah. you, so, I mean, this, um, yeah. C talk to me about that. Like, how did you start doing, re like, I, I know you're a gamer and you, you like, you like gaming. You were just talking about getting distracted by <laughs> Elden Ring before. Uh, <laughs> Jesse Singles really into that too. You guys should uh, yeah. <laughs> chat about your suits of armor or whatever the hell <laughs> goes on in that game. Um, but yeah, so like, was that, I don't know, like, I, I guess I, like, I'm just trying to like the origin story of you and you, sort of the position you see yourself in now. Cause I, I feel quite sympathetic to it in the sense that like you sort of, you grow up, you come into, you get an education then you come into grad school and stuff like that. And, 
for me, it's, it's almost been this gradual progression away from just thinking that like, oh, well, you know, left-wing people like me are the rational ones uh, and write about everything to sort of now just feeling a little bit politically homeless and looking at almost everybody and just seeing all sorts of bias, uh, confirmation bias and my side bias and just all sorts of motivated reasoning underlying almost everything everybody does. And you're sort of now in this sort of lonely place. And I kind of where, yeah, you just sort of like almost looking at society and just thinking, oh, now they're going to do this. And oh my God, now they're going to do this. And like almost powerless to just stop the just sheer irrationality and yeah. the just momentum that this kind of all these culture war battles have and, and stuff like that. Um, but what was your sort of intro to that? Was it because like the video game stuff was more, that was more conservatives kind of saying we need to ban this stuff. Was it, or, or was it liberals? I, I don't know. It was a bit before my time. It was pretty bipartisan initially. It's become much more of a conservative issue, you know, particularly during the Trump era when, you know, again, it's like another classic example of sort of bad decision making that, you know, on both sides that as soon as Trump declared violent video games caused mass homicides, suddenly half the country decided that they didn't anymore. You know, <laughs> and granted, you know, well, you know, it shouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth. I'm glad that half the country realized this was a mistake, but they did it for the wrong reason. They did it because Trump embraced it, you know, rather than knowing anything about the actual literature or the, or the data. Because people have been talking about it for years beforehand and nobody cared, you know, all of a sudden mm. Pope with his mouth and people have a, you know, um, come to Jesus moment over it. But, you know, so it's fine. I'm, you know, you know, like I said, uh, I, I, I don't want to um, challenge that too much because it ended up being kind of the right thing, but but for the wrong reason. Right. You know, so I think, you know, for myself, it, it really wasn't so much, you know, being a, a gamer per se, because when I was growing up in the 80s, video games really weren't yet at the sort of forefront of these things. And, but but I did remember in the 80s, particularly, there were these large panics over rock music. And we're really talking about like Cindy Lauper and Prince and, of course, bands like ACDC and things like that. Mm. Um, and uh, and then also Dungeons and Dragons, which I actually did play, you know, and mm. I still play Dungeons and Dragons because I'm a really big geek. Um, and, um, you know, Who and, do you so play with? I, I mostly play online, actually. So I, oh, I wow. Well, we've been, we've been playing together for like 20 years almost. Uh, in fact, we were just reflecting on that last night. But yeah, so I have a dedicated group of guys that are guys and women, the, the, the gender neutral guys. <laughs> that So can uh, I ask a quick question, quick interjection? Like, yeah. what are the barriers to entry like for somebody, I don't know, who's interested in like maybe trying it but has never played it before? Like, could I play with you guys or is that just like, no? If, as long as you have the two thousand dollar admission fee, then yeah, then that's no, no. I'm kidding. No, uh, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, I think you'll find most D groups are actually quite welcoming, you know. And uh, you know, I mean, there are, you know, I actually tried at one point to encourage my wife to play just because it'd be a lot of fun to play with my wife. Um, and she looked at all these books and went like, "No, it looks like school," you know. So there yeah. definitely is a learning curve, you know, sort of involved in it. But generally, what happens is if you express an interest in, you know, in fact, I'm, I run a game right now where we've got a few, a few new new players. Um, usually, you can find some group that's willing to take on someone who's new, and you just kind of learn by doing it, you know, to a large extent. You can get sort of like the they have like the player's handbook that you can you know learn the basic rules and this sort of stuff. But for the most part, you just kind of 
you know, learn by getting with a group who's pretty accepting of new players and just playing along with them. And uh, usually if you have a group of, you know, five, six, seven people who are playing, you bring in one new player, it's not that big a deal. You know, it's not a burden or anything, you know. So as long as they're having fun and they're, you know, willing to learn some of the basic rules. And I think it's actually not that hard, you know, to get it. So, but you you know, you're not going to know what the hell is going on the first time, but, you know, you stick with it for a few weeks and eventually they'll start to, to click. You know, so sign, it's, uh, sign Rachel, but it's fun. It's Rachel and I, Rachel and I are in. Sign us up. Yeah, uh, absolutely not. I cannot <laughs> sign up for that. Um, yeah, I yeah. tried to get both my son and my wife to play, and they were like, "Absolutely not." Um, but uh, you know, so I think you know, it probably is. You know, kind of like. <laughs> You people who love to read are probably gonna be the ones who, who uh, do, yeah, because there are a lot of books and manuals that go along with it. And if you like kind of like a certain degree of complexity, then it probably, if you just want to play checkers, it's not, it's not checkers, you know, so it's, you, you know, uh, but that's why I think it's always been coded as kind of like nerdish, geekish activity. Uh, for the most yeah. part, but it, but it does not cause schizophrenia or homicide or <laughs> suicide or all these things that it was accused of doing in the eighties, you know? So, uh, but. yeah, well, that was the, that was a plot line of stranger things. They re- they worked that in. Did you guys watch the latest season? Yeah. No, I haven't seen it. Yeah. I've, I've no seen that. Stranger things. stranger things is amazing. Yeah. That they do. They do a nice job, but they, they also treat, you know, Dungeons and Dragons very compassionately. You know, they, they obviously mm-hmm. they're, yeah, it's a very positive portrayal of the game and the players, you know, and all that stuff. And that's very different from like Mazes and Monsters, which is a Tom Hanks movie from the 80s where it made it look mm-hmm. like he developed psychosis and went off to commit suicide, um, you know, and stuff. So back then, the depiction of the game was very negative. And it was it was sort of based, again, on this sort of moral panic mm-hmm. about, you know, um, you know, everybody, sort of like the Dothraki and Game of Thrones, another geek reference, but, you know, so the side, everybody, know, it is known that, you know, mm-hmm. Dungeons and Dragons causes suicide and satanism and all these other things just like today people are like it is known that social media causes suicide and, and probably satanism and all kinds of other stuff as well you know so people tend to you know get these narratives and this is really kind of what interests me if you kind of look at the, the thread between you know my work on like video games and uh, now i do more on like race and policing and that kind of stuff and really the thread is that people get these narratives you know we know that police are discriminating against minorities in the United States. You know, we know that video games cause mass homicides and this sort of, you know, it was sort of fascinating. And it's, it's, it's really kind of, you know, going through the sort of the video game stuff over the last couple of decades. I think most people were actually pretty accepting. You know, put the day in front of them and they're pretty, they're pretty open to it. Um, mm. But it was fascinating in some cases where, you know, that you would like, um, talk to parents and they would say hey look my kid plays a lot of video games he's 14 he's a good kid he's doing well but i'm still worried and then you tell them well hey look some good news is you know at this point the evidence doesn't really suggest you have a lot to worry about and in some cases they get angry you know <laughs> not all the time you know but most people most parents feel good about it but occasionally someone will get angry and that always was an interesting thing like if you sort of like people say i'm worried that the thing x is bad and it's very common and then you come along and say well actually you know what you can relax thing x isn't really all that bad a certain percentage of the population will be pissed you know and you can kind of see this with like the race and policing stuff people say we know that police are like killing you know black and latino people all over the place say well actually you know the evidence is that police shootings of unarmed people pretty rare and it doesn't seem to be that you know race is the biggest predictor of them say well no that's that's you know 
people get upset by good news, you know, in, in some situations. And that's remarkable, <laughs> you know, to me. And it says, I think that there's something else going on, you know, in people's minds. And I think, you know, other than simply being concerned about video games and their children or being concerned about policing and, and this, something else is going on because otherwise good news should be good news. You know, and that's what I want to understand more. It's like, why do people get angry when there's good news? So, um, yeah, you brought up social media and that was something I wanted to ask about. You write, write about this in the book too, about how like people are uh, exaggerating how bad social media is. And like, it's not actually the catastrophe that we think it is. Yeah. Um, and there was just this uh, New York Times op-ed uh, about how we should restrict the age of social media to like 18 and over. And in general, um, Jonathan Haidt and like, you know, associated people have for a few years now been uh, really strongly advocating mm -hmm. about the dangers of social media. And uh, yeah, I was just wanted to hear like what your response is to um those kinds of claims. Yeah, they're wrong. <laughs> I love John. Jonathan's awesome. I, you know, so, you know, I, I appreciate a lot of what Jonathan does. He and I get along, I think, you know, very well, you know, we talk through email, um, you know, and that sort of stuff. I think he's done a lot of good work with heterodox Academy, um, you know, and pushing back against, you know, free speech issues on campus and, you know, all that stuff. So I think he's done a really valuable work in a lot of, a lot of areas. Um, but, you know, I just 180 degrees disagree with him, you know, on, on this particular point. And, and, and the one, the one thing I'll say that, you know, uh, I, I sometimes get annoyed by, by Jonathan and I have, I've told him that, so, that, you know, this isn't anything I haven't said to him directly is that, you know, which is common for a lot of these, you know, moral panics. I mean, we saw this with video games. We see this with discussions of race and policing is that you could kind of make this argument, right? That, you know, well, social media and mental health, maybe there's a link, but you know, hey, what? I'm gonna tell you straight up, some studies find effects, some studies don't find effects. You know, there's these inconsistencies, but, you know, I actually kind of think that the studies that find effects are more credible to me. So you could kind of make that argument, right? And we could debate it. You know, what I get more concerned about or annoyed by or whatever you want to say is when, you know, and Jonathan does do this sometimes and other people have done it as well, is when they make it sound like the evidence is 100% behind, you know, whatever their particular, you know, perspective is, you know, and and I, and that's, it's lying, you know, it's, you know, you, you can make a case, you know, but it, but that's not accurate. You're not giving people accurate information, you know, and that's something we saw researchers do with video game violence. Um, it was a really bad thing, you know, scientifically when people communicated that way, you know, I, I you know, uh, don't think it's good when Jonathan does it either because it misinforms the public. Um, although I know his heart's in the right place. You know, I, I don't think he's got like evil motives or anything of that sort, you know, to do it. I just don't think it's a very good practice. But but that certainly is the case. I mean, you know, the, the overall, the evidence is, in my opinion, is pretty, pretty weak. I mean, the effect sizes are tiny, tiny, tiny effect sizes. Um, they sometimes achieve statistical significance because they run 600,000 people through a study in some situations, you know. Um, and uh, so you get these really micro effects that can be, you know, like literally the size of the impact of eating potatoes on suicide, you know. So they're really, really tiny, tiny correlations. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are, are not very 
good in terms of quality. You know, we just did a meta-analysis. There's a big bunch of us in the media psychology divisions of the APA, which I was a member of at the time. I'm, I'm no longer a member. Uh, the British Psychological Society and the uh, uh, psychological side of Ireland all got together and kind of worked on this. And our, our conclusion in this meta-analysis, really, there's not much there, you know, that screens and social media specifically don't really seem to have much impact on on mental health. And I think there are, you know, are real concerns again, because we see this kind of argument that this media is dangerous. We saw this with video games. We saw it with rock music. You know, we saw it with comic books in the 1950s. People make this argument, this media is dangerous and therefore we need to restrict it, which is really kind of an open door to censorship in one form, um, you know, or another. And particularly yeah, people when people said that about books, right? Yeah, well, they did about just the radio, books, comic books, in the 1950s, rock music in the 1980s. You know, there were all these kind of efforts to, to restrict things. You know, uh, certain books were illegal to sell in the United States up until the 1960s and such when the Supreme Court kind of struck that down, um, particularly sexual, you know, sexual content in, in, in books and such. But, um, you know, I think it's a dangerous argument to make, particularly when the evidence is so flimsy. Now, I, in the United States, I don't know, you know, the First Amendment is so strong, I don't really know that you can even make this thing pass. You know, I, I, I'm skeptical it will ever fly constitutionally that you can restrict youth's access to social media. I just don't think that's going to happen legally. Other countries, quite possible, well, you know, could do it. Yeah. I mean, there are, like, officially restrictions right now, right? You have to be, like, at least 13 years old to use most social media platforms so it's not like about whether you can it's just like what the age limit would be or do you see there that being like a categorical difference somehow well i think the, the difference is who's making the restrictions so if it's the companies you know making the 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 restrictions you know company private private entities can do whatever they want you know you can go into a starbucks and they can kick you right back out again they have the right to do that you know um but the government does not, you know, so if the argument is that we're going to sort of have a national law that restricts use access to social media based upon some age, uh, that is very unlikely to pass any kind of constitutional, um, you know, muster. So that is that is really the difference is, you know, is whether in the United States, the 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 government, whether it's a state or federal government can enforce that sort of thing. It's just like the movies. There's nothing that stops a four-year-old from buying a ticket to go, say, straight out of Compton, you know, in terms of, you know, legal requirements. A toddler can go see an R-rated movie in the United States. It's the movie theaters that stop them from going. It's not the government that stops them from going. A police officer can't walk in there and arrest anybody or fine anybody or anything of that sort. You know, so private entities can decide who they want to sell their products to, um, you know, uh, but the government, you know, cannot, you know, with with a few exceptions, like pornography, of course, is one exception. Uh, but aside from that, you know, that is, uh, you know, that is the case. So I, I would think that, you know, the argument that we need some sort of like national uh, regulatory system that is going to restrict minors access to social media is just not going to happen uh, because of the First Amendment. So um, talk me through like the, this evidence base, because I, I guess... Um, I've I'm not that familiar with it, but I'm I'm assuming most of it is kind of co correlational, right? Like, so you're taking teenagers and asking them about their screen time, and then asking them about their mental health and stuff like that, and looking for correlations. And um, but all sorts of things must be um, correlated with sort of screen time and social media use uh, among teenagers. Um, I mean, gender. 
social class, um, you know, like just yeah, or like a whole a whole gamut of things. I, I there's one study that I thought was quite good, which was actually a randomized control trial. They had to um, pay people quite a lot of money to stop using Facebook uh, mm-hmm. for a month or two, um, and. Yeah, the results were a little bit ambiguous. It was like on some outcomes, it looks yeah. like the group that stopped using Facebook were a little bit happier. But then if you actually read the paper, there was like so many outcomes measured yeah. <laughs> that, you know, effects on a few of them are like neither sort of here or there. And it, I mean, it interests me because I'm open. I'm definitely open to the hypothesis. I mean, you seem very sort of convinced that there's nothing there and more familiar with the research. So yeah, like what, what is the evidence base that's kind of being used or relied on by both sides of this debate? And what sort of, what is it that most convinces you that there's nothing to worry about? Yeah, those are great, those are great questions. Yeah. So I mean, I think there really are three kind of basic sets of studies. The first is just what you mentioned. You take a group of people. Yeah, a lot of them are still college students, but you know, you do get some that are with youth and uh, you just kind of track them. Either it's like a cross-sectional, you're just looking at them at one point of time, or you actually track them over time uh, to see what sort of things correlate with outcomes down the road or something of that sort. Uh, the second, there's a small number of these kind of experimental designs. It's not as many experiments with social media as you have with like video games, for instance. So it's probably a little bit harder to do. Um, but uh, you, so you do have these kind of, like you said, you know, where you kind of ask people to desist, you know, from using social media um the the problem with those is it's pretty obvious to the person what the hypothesis was you know mm-hmm. so you can kind of get these demand characteristics from that that's really that you can kind of control for that in other studies like video games you can give them other things to do that you know distract them from the hypothesis it's really harder to do when you tell someone that you know, they have to stop using Facebook for a month. They're going to get it. Mm-hmm. You know, they know what they're supposed to think. You know, mm-hmm. at the end of this, um, and and then we have these studies that are kind of ecological. You know, where they're tracking like teen suicide rates over time and trying to like time series design. You know, then trying to mm-hmm. correlate that with changes in social media habits um, over time. And the, the kind of the pattern you see, and a lot of these are done with these kind of like big data sets like monitoring the future or the the cdc's what the hell is that thing called the youth youth something or other i can't remember the name off the top of my head um but um yeah so they're publicly available data sets and people and one person will take it and analyze it in one way and say haha i found an effect and then another group will take it and analyze it in a different way and say haha we didn't find an effect you know and you know people will argue that one version of this is better um than you know than the other i mean kind of the thing in general i kind of look for today is looking to see which of these things are pre-registered um you know and my observationally so far you know is that most of the pre-registered studies have generally not been very successful in finding um you know effects the the other thing i think is key here is looking at the effect size so even in a lot of these studies that find effects uh, I'm thinking of like, you know, Jean Twenge, or Twenge, Twenge, I can never figure out how to pronounce her name, but, um, you know, she works a lot with Jonathan Haidt. Um, a lot of their studies will find an effect, but again, they ran like 100,000 people through it. So if you look at the effect size, this it's a correlation coefficient of like 0.06, you know, which is well within noise. You know, mm-hmm. we, we actually did this analysis of noise effects in, in social science, and we generally find that effect sizes below 0.1 i'm being a little bit inside baseball here i know a lot of your 
listeners or academics. So hopefully that's it's okay to be a little bit inside baseball, but I think yeah, so. I don't think basically so. effects below 0.1 are generally difficult to distinguish from noise, essentially. And we really, probably really shouldn't interpret effect sizes below 0.1. So you're really seeing it in many to most of these studies, these effect sizes are teensy tiny. And, and, and my view don't really provide, um, clear evidence uh, for there being any kind of effect size there. So when I, I mentioned like the potatoes and suicide, and that, that wasn't arbitrary. Uh, like Andy Shabilsky and Amy Orban have shown that you can take these data sets and you, if you analyze things in the same way um, with these other things, that you can show that there are small correlations between eating potatoes and suicide or wearing eyeglasses and suicide, which is bad news for me because I'm wearing eyeglasses right now. Um, so we'll see how this conversation goes, you know, I guess, in this sense, you know, but we don't run around, you know, our, you know, warning parents about the dangers of eyeglasses and potatoes. You know, what you have is that people had a set of priors and by people, I mean, the, the scholars in the study, they're human beings. This is, this isn't a criticism of them as individuals. This is a very human process, but they came in with priors. You know, they expected to see something for social media and suicide or mental health or whatever. They got this tiny correlation. They didn't look at potatoes and eyeglasses because they didn't have any expectations there. And, you know, their threshold of evidence was very low, you know, because they expected to see it in the first place. So they're not surprised, you know. Mm. Uh, and as a result, they don't kick the tires, you know, as well as they could have, you know, with a lot of this stuff. So I think that's kind of where the field is at. We really need, you know, more pre-registered designs. We really need better designs, you know, at this point. A, a lot of the studies are just not that good. Um, mm -hmm. you know, as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's worth, yeah, you know, we just don't, there's, there's not a lot of there, there, you know, and it's not because I love social media. I actually really don't, you know, for the mm -hmm. most part, uh, I, you know, um, mm -hmm. I think there are some legitimate problems with social media. I just don't think it's the ones that people think is, is the real key, you know, problem with, with the, you know, with social media. So, um, you know, and the ecological stuff, I think, is very clearly an ecological fallacy because you hear people talk about, well, teen girls, you know, teen girls are experiencing higher rates of suicide than 10 years ago. And haha, that's about when Facebook and Instagram get popular and all this sort of stuff. But yeah, but what about 50 year old white dudes like me? We're the ones that kill themselves more than anybody else. <laughs> you know, again, uh, you know, we'll see how this conversation goes. But if, you know, teens are not the highest suicide, you know, committing group of people. And even in terms of like the increase in the suicides, you know, it was really middle aged white men and in fairness, about 25 year old Native American men are the two mm. groups that you see the highest suicide rates in and the, the biggest increase in terms of raw numbers of suicides, you know, in these groups of individuals. So I think what's happening is that this is like the, you know, three blind men and the elephant, you know, where everybody is touching one part of the animal. And because they're only feeling one part of it, they, they're misconstruing what is actually happening. So if you only look at teens, then it's really easy to sort of attribute this. Well, they're high tech using individuals, particularly girls, maybe. Although if it had been boys, it would have been another rationalization about why it was boys instead of girls, too. But, you know, you make this argument, well, maybe, you know, girls are more susceptible to social contagion or something of that sort. You know, and therefore, that's why you're seeing this affecting girls, but not boys. Um, but that's ignoring the fact that things are much worse for non-tech ad uh, adopting or, you know, less tech adopting middle-aged adults like myself. Um, that, uh, you know, that's where, you know, you're seeing a lot more suicide. And if you actually can look at, you know, and I, we actually did a study 
on teen suicide, but it was really more in the context of 13 Reasons Why, which was a, a moral panic from about five years ago, um, that has since died away. Um, and we found really that with a lot of these things, I mean, if you look at teens, the thing that sort of predict teen suicide really is more like bullying. You know, so if they're being bullied, that's a big factor. But also if they're just exposed to actual suicides in their social sphere. So if their family members or their friends are committing suicide, that tends to predict their own suicidal ideation. You know, so those are the things we probably should really be looking at. That that really what's happening is probably a very, you know, intergenerational situation where everybody's miserable today compared to 10 years ago. And instead of looking at this holistically or comprehensively, by focusing in only on teens and then the exclusion of everybody else, we're, we're misdiagnosing a larger problem as being due to social media uh, rather than other things that may be going on in the social environment. Uh, and that's, again, not because I love social media. I've multiple times described Twitter as a, te- as a hellhole, um, you know, but uh, so I, I, Dude, I have no you're on Twitter all day. <laughs> I'm actually not on it all day. I, I check in every now and again to see what the hell's going on. But uh, I've actually learned to cultivate my, my and we can talk about this too, but like tips of using social media so your brain doesn't like explode quite as bad. But uh, I, I've, I've learned to sort of cultivate uh, Twitter probably better than Facebook. And there are ways of like kind of, getting rid of the noise at a some extent like actually it was katie herzog again talking about like blocked report a lot today um but uh who had a tip on their show blocked reporter that was basically you can set your notifications so you only get notifications for people that you follow or follow you and that mm. helps a lot you know mm. cutting out the crazy you know from now maybe we're all crazy together uh, and there are probably some legitimate concerns about siloing and this sort of stuff. But in terms of just the user experience, you know, the the experience of using like Twitter and, and presumably other forms of social media are, are much better if you cultivate your experience with it. Um, so, um, yeah, anyway. But but if you don't, Twitter's terrible. <laughs> you know, so anyway. But so yeah, just... Uh, push back a little bit on what you were saying about like how there's these different groups um, that, you know, there's increased rates of suicide mm-hmm. and it sounded like, like what you were saying is we need to try to like view this problem holistically mm-hmm. as a whole and see like, what is it that's causing suicide rates to go up among everyone? Um, but like, it's not clear to me why that would be the case and why like someone could push back and just say like, well, like, no, like teenage girls are actually very different from middle-aged men. And so whatever might be causing higher rates of suicide in one group need not be connected at all to what uh, is affecting a different group. Uh, so, yeah. I think it's like an empirical question, but not necessarily. Agree with you. No, I, I think that's fair. I think that's a fair repost um, that, you know, you're absolutely correct that, you know, every hypothesis has to be studied um individually you know but i think there again that's where you would ask well let's look at like everything that's going on in uh these teen girls universe right not just social media but let's look at like how their family is doing you know and that's where again like you know this wasn't done in the context of 13 reasons or excuse me of social media it was done in the context of 13 reasons why And, and what we found is that um if anything for teenagers girls or boys that viewing 13 reasons why was associated with a little bit better mental health, actually, you know, it wasn't a huge effect size, but it was, you know, bigger than 0.06. Uh, so <laughs> it had that going for it. Uh, but uh, but really, it seemed to be like the thing that, you know, predicted um, suicidal ideation or just depression 
uh, more generally, where again, you know, one was bullying, which could be quite unique, you know, although adults bully each other too, but that could be something that's sort of specific to what teens are experiencing. But again, the other one was that it was their exposure to family members and friends who were committing suicide. Um, you know, so I think that does suggest that there's something going on intergenerationally, that the experiences of parents are having an impact on the experiences of these teens and maybe vice versa, you know, uh, to, to some extent. But uh, but yeah, but I, I agree with you that that is definitely an empirical question. And, you know, it's the same thing. We don't want to be married to any one particular viewpoint if it ends up that the data doesn't, you know, support it. But and that's where, again, I think I would, I would like to see a lot better designs that really kind of you know, did what we did with 13 Reasons Why and did that you know, with social media and look at, well, let's look at people's social media habits, uh, their own exposure to peers and family members who are suicidal, um, their experience with bullying, their experience with a bunch of other things. And let's see which of these things, you know, in a pre-registered longitudinal design, let's see which of these things actually predicts these outcomes that we're concerned about, like depression, loneliness, suicidal ideation, and, and these teenagers, you know, and, I, and we don't really have anything that's that good yet, you know, so I'd like to see something better that really address this. And we all have to be open-minded, right, because this gets back into the book, right, we have these priors about what we believe we should see, uh, it can make us resistant to seeing things that surprise us, you know, mm-hmm. so uh, we have to be, you know, open to the idea of being surprised, you know. So actually, Jonathan and I have have a little bet going. So you know, we're basically going to give it ten years, uh, and the bet is the ecological one. We're going to look at you know the sort of these trends of of social media use and and teen suicide, and you know the bet is mm-hmm. you know, maybe Sam's ghoulish to bet over this. I don't know, but you know, but the 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 bet is basically whether or not these trend lines continue in concert with each other. Or if they mm-hmm. if they diverge, you know, and essentially if they diverge, then then I win. And if they continue, then he wins. And uh, one of us has to buy the other one a stake, you know. So so my 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 suspicion, I think this is a pretty safe bet, is that just like with t- television violence and video game violence, where sort of increased exposure at the community level was associated with violent crime uh, for a while there. That eventually these trend lines will disc will you know decouple from each other, right? You know, and so what happened is that violent crime plummeted from the 1993 through, you know, 2019, you know, basically. And that really sort of put a big crimp in this argument that television or video game violence was causing that. And I I suspect we're in the middle of another ecological fallacy where right now these somewhat, I think, sort of cherry-picked trend lines are right now converging. But my best guess is they probably won't. You know, social media use probably is not going to go away but I suspect things will eventually change for teen depression and, and suicide. And it will sort of suggest there's not much going on there for, for social media. I feel like that's such a hard hypothesis to falsify though, because like you could say, well, it was bad at the beginning when people weren't used to it. It wasn't a part of our like daily lives, whatever. Um, and, and, or like it was this like new shiny thing. And so everyone was doing it all the time, but eventually like, it it no longer, you know, the next new big thing came out. And so social media was no longer the, like such a big force in people's lives. And so that's why that decoupling occurs. And like, like, you know, so like, no matter, I guess what evidence you find, I feel like you could 
really interpret it as either way. Well, I think that's why we need these theories to have very clear, you know, guidelines for falsification. You know, I think that's a problem with a lot of theories in social science is that they are a little bit like trying to nail pudding to a wall, you know, in the sense of you say, well, X and Y are converging. And that way that for that reason, this is evidence for my beliefs. And then you say, well, they're no longer converging. Say, well, aha, I have a good explanation for why they're no longer converging. And so it still confirms my beliefs, right? You know, yeah, I mean, you know, this is kind of like the, you know, the college dorm room exercise where you have enough, you know, pot to smoke and a piece to eat. And you kind of like, you know, philosophize over all these things without really worrying about data. But, but again, I think the burden of proof is still going to be on the person who's making the sort of assumption, you know. So if you're basically saying that people are using social media more and more, but somehow it's having less impact on their lives, you need to have some sort of reason of explaining why that is, you know, what has changed, you know, in social media. And, you know, otherwise I think it feels a little bit like grasping for straws and, and, and really you can't have it both ways. You know, you can't make the argument that ecological data matter when it supports your hypothesis and suddenly doesn't matter when it no longer supports your hypothesis. I mean, that, that certainly opens us up to, you know, a, a lot of confirmation bias types of issues there, you know. So either you say ecological data is faulty and we should never use it. I'm okay with that, um, by the way. I'm okay with that. Um, or you say it always matters, you know, uh, whether it agrees with me or not. Uh, I'm okay with that too, you know, but you got to pick one. <laughs> you can't You can't do this game of it matters when it fits my hypothesis and suddenly doesn't matter. When it doesn't fit my hypothesis, you know, that's a fair, fairly obvious invitation to confirmation bias. And and I think what you're saying is there's you basically, well, there's a reasonable explanation for one. Yeah, sure. But what you're going to get is confirmation bias, uh, you know, uh, because people are going to engage in motivated reasoning about coming up with those explanations. Hmm. So I think it's very it's very hard so like when you learn statistics and learn about causal inference and stuff like that like it it becomes pretty obvious that it's like it's actually really hard to uh conclusively prove causal effects at the societal scale right like this so these broad societal trends like i kind of think you know social media has been a huge revolution in how people have interacted and lived their daily lives like people are staring at young people are staring at screens for 12 hours a day uh which was you know zero 40 years ago or 50 years ago or something like that so like it's totally plausible to me that it has major effects i mean i would look you know and it's not just suicide right like anxiety i believe is increasing political polarization is increasing um, you know, you, you could argue like, um, I mean, effective polarization, Rachel, sorry, like not every kind of political polarization is increasing. (laughs) Um, and I think it's totally plausible that these things are linked, but I also think it's very hard to prove these things, these large societal trends and these large causal effects in a society. And it's almost, yeah, I feel like it becomes very easy for the contrarian, right? So like, I almost feel like with these big questions, the contrarian that's on the sidelines kind of saying, or not necessarily on the sidelines, but the person who's there saying, oh, but we don't have conclusive evidence that that causes that. That's almost, um, 
that's kind of an, an easy default and it's very hard to prove these things. So, so I guess I have a couple of questions. Like mm-hmm. one is like, what evidence, if you, somebody gave you a billion dollars to mm-hmm. say like, I want you, Chris Ferguson to tell me, you know, social media has transformed the way youth interact with each other. I want you to tell me what causal effect that has in society. Like, and here's a billion dollars. No, let's make it a trillion dollars. Like, so like <laughs> infinite resources for you. Yeah. to answer this question um what would you what would you do actually let me just ask one question because one question at a time that's a good way to do things <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah like what what evidence where what would you do with the trillion dollars yeah what evidence would convince you as as this sort of skeptic yeah that's a great question yeah that's that's very fair um, and we should probably put my email in the show notes for that dollar <laughs> or billion dollar, trillion dollar person who wants to, uh, you know, I'm just kidding, of course. No, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, I want to see studies that are pre-registered. You know, I think I'm, I'm more convinced by pre-registered studies than non-pre-registered studies. Simple as that. And, and open data, you know, so if people that are willing to put their data out there and let other people look at them. Yeah, I think that means a lot. Um, I think in, the, in these realms, at least, I think the longitudinal studies tend to be the best. You know, um, they seem to be the, they're not all good, <laughs> to be sure. But, you know, I think there's, you know, you get at things better with longitudinal studies than you do even with experiments, I think, at least in this particular realm. That may not be true in other places, of course, you know, um, but the, the experiments have just been so bad. Um, so you want clinically validated measures you know, so not stuff that the researcher thought up on the fly, but stuff that has, uh, you know, so if you're looking at depression using, you know, the child depression inventory or the child behavior checklist or something of that sort, you know, stuff that's, that has established clinical utility, um, you want effect sizes that you know are not noise, you know, so effect sizes below 0.1, I'm not that interested in, you know, um, even in an otherwise beautifully designed study, because I, I just think there's this sort of inherent noise um, in psychological studies. Studies. Um, it's going to need to have distractors, you know, so you need to make the hypothesis of the study somehow invisible to the participants, you know, so you need to ask them about a lot of dumb shit that has nothing to do with your actual hypothesis. You got to give them measures that are like out there. So they're wondering, like, why the hell are you asking about who I want to marry, you know, when I grow up and this sort of stuff? You know, I wonder what that has to do with the hypothesis. And the answer is nothing. You know, um, and, you know, in the pre-registration, I want to see, you know, that the analysis plan is all laid out. And for the most part, I want it to be something that doesn't require me to go back to graduate school to figure out what the hell you're doing. You know, in other words, OLS regression, you know, should do it. You know, if you have to start doing multiple arrows and curves and some sort of SEM path analysis thing, you know, and I, I get more and more skeptical that you have a lot of flexibility there to make things, you know, happen, you know. So I think within any kind of like bounds of, you know, you know, social science is always going to have some limits. I mean, we're never ever going to be able to perfectly tap into, um, you know, a behavior. But if you were able to get longitudinal studies that use clinically significant, clinically validated measures, uh, well-established measures, had distractor tasks in them, uh, had a smallest effect size of significance of at least 0.1, maybe even 0.2, you know, would be even better, uh, pre-registered, open data, I, I would be kind of convinced by that. You know, I, you know again, it's still mm. kind of correlational because longitudinal mm. designs are correlational at the end of the day. Mm. 
But at least I might be able to say, like, huh, there's something there. I mean, it's still maybe there's a third variable that's explaining all these things, but at least there's a link there, you know, mm-hmm. that is interesting and, you know, worthy of, of uh, you know, looking at, you know. And, right. yeah, I mean, I think, that, I think actually it is helpful to have people who are gadfly sort of like kicking the tires of these things but occasionally we are convinced by the way you know so like, like i used to think advertising was pretty minimal in terms of its impact and i did a few studies on advertising and i actually found kind of the same effects everybody else did so like well okay in that case everybody else was right you know um you know uh so it is possible to be convinced uh, you know or it should be possible to be convinced any anyway, right but um but I think, yeah, you, know, you really want to, ha- and, and the other thing I do want to see uh, that I don't see in a lot of studies, I want to see, I don't think this ever happens, really, is when people talk about their theories, it's lovely that they sort of outline their theories and all the bits and parts of it. But I would like to see people very specifically say, and here are the data points that would falsify my theory. Here are the things that if other people found, I would have to acknowledge my theory is just wrong, not changeable, but just wrong. This, this would kill it. You know, and I think that's one of the big problems we have in all of social science is that we just don't have that. You know, so you know, as Rachel was kind of saying, all the theories now are like, I think X causes Y, and you come back and say, Well, I found a study here that doesn't say X causes Y. Oh, well, that's because you have to put Z in there somewhere, you know. And there's just like a lot of that that goes on in social science. And so you just end up with these these theories that just kind of go on and on and on, you know, forever, even though the actual evidence for them is is uh, you know, is, is pretty weak. Um, do, do that make, does that help? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope somebody gives you a trillion dollars. I mean, I, I guess yeah, it's it, like, it, they should contact you and then you contact me and let me know about this sort of stuff. Or I'm, I'm easy to find on the internet, you know, reach out to me. If you get you know, a few million dollars, you want to, yeah, I'll, I'll make yeah, it happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, you, know, you know what? I tell you what. The, the, the whole trillion might not make its way to you, but okay. you'll you'll get if some. If someone of it. gives me a million dollars to do this, the other thing I will do is I will immediately contact Jonathan Haidt and invite him to be a, a co co-author on this. That's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's helpful to look for is if mm-hmm. you get two people that have very different views mm-hmm. issue that collaborate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you have these what they call them adversarial collaborations. That doesn't mean the people hate each other. I, I I like I said, I actually like. I think Jonathan's a great guy. You know, and I would love to work with them on a million dollar project that we both agreed was a good design. And who the hell? We'll see what happens. You know, and that's part of the fun of this stuff is sometimes you, you know, sometimes it's fun to be surprised and go, hey, okay, I was wrong about this thing. And now I'm fascinated. And I think this is interesting. You know, so. yeah, I, t- I tell you what, if someone wants to give me a million dollars, I will I will work with Jonathan Haidt uh, on a study just like this. I mean, I could see the NIH giving you a million dollars to run this study. It, like, if Haidt's involved, like, um, <laughs> not that you're not a massive name, but, I mean, he's... he's no, his star is like, burning like, way brighter. Liberty. <laughs> <That might>. um, <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Uh, can we talk about COVID? Cause that's kind of the part of the book I focused on and we haven't talked about COVID much on this podcast. Uh, and there was some interesting stuff there. Rachel, you, you look like you're disappointed. You had a question. <laughs> well, no, lined up, ready to no, go. no, you're, you're good. I just thought, you know, I just feel like it's not a bad thing that we haven't talked about COVID a lot, but oh. <laughs> we can, we can give it like 10 minutes. So. You know, it's about time that somewhere on this planet, someone talks about COVID. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's your question, Paul? Okay. Well, okay. So COVID is like, it takes up multiple chapters 
and it's it's right at the start of this book so it's almost like it's almost like the main the main course of this book then we get into it and and you sort of talk about how um the response to covid was sub optimal <laughs> that's a good although word. it was you know it differed in different parts of the world but you sort of focus on the us and what happened here um and i was you know i read it and i was thinking about it and i was trying to think about covid and you know it was such a it was just such a weird thing that happened to all of us right yeah. and i like was was the response that bad like did if on a scorecard like i guess like compared to some other countries the us didn't do that well but did did the us do that badly i'm not sure cuz you sort of talk about you sort of talk about at times like oh this could have been an opportunity for everybody to sort of come together mm-hmm. and meet this collective threat and even though yes like we didn't do that in a lot of ways i think we kind of did do that in a lot of ways too like every every single store had those stickers on the ground for social distancing and they're like pretty much everybody wore masks like for a while right until it became yeah. until it sort of became like a culture war thing and but it became then, a culture war thing like right away the the masks did they i don't like, I, don't, I mean, like, I, I guess I don't only have my experience in San Francisco and, but I did, yeah, definitely like went to Texas, but by the time, I don't know, but also the evidence behind masks was like, not, not never like amazing. Like, and it was, yeah. So I don't know, like what, just sort of like taking a bird's eye picture, I guess, like, do you, do you think it was that catastrophic the the response or was it i don't know i cuz i guess i kind of feel like it was a bit of a mix between actually we handled it pretty well in some ways and maybe not in other ways but maybe some of those ways were would have been hard to avoid yeah well i actually didn't think of it and maybe it came across this way but i, I actually didn't think of it as my criticizing the U.S. specifically, you know, and I actually don't didn't really like a lot of the articles that came out in the news media that seemed to really kind of harp on this like anti-U.S. sentiment of like, look how bad we're doing compared to Germany. You know, I, I actually don't think that was very helpful, you know. Um, in, it's in a lot pretty of equivalent to Western Europe. Yeah, uh, yeah. U.S. death rates and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and I think that sort of you know bore out over over time, you know. Um, and, but I don't think that, you know, that sort of messaging of, you know, it, it became like a contest, like oikophobia almost, like, you know, that it's like news media articles are fascinated with how bad the U.S. is doing compared to, like, you know, I guess Germany or Denmark or someplace like that, you know, or Australia or New Zealand that basically like shut themselves down, became like self-imposed prisons um, to some extent, you know, but. Um, so I actually don't think that kind of comparison that some people engaged in was was good either. You know, so that, it was never my intention really to kind of say, like, well, look how bad the U.S. did compared to Europe or, or something of that sort. And I was really more fascinated with sort of like moment by moment decisions that that policymakers had made in some situations, but also just people and the general public made about some of that information that it might have made things worse you know and kind of like the example is 
you know, there there seemed to be at least some credible information to suggest that, you know, policymakers like Fauci, perhaps, and I'm trying to think of a careful way of putting it, you know, a nice way of saying lied, <laughs> I guess, you know, but, you know, about, about things like, you know, when they thought the masks were effective, but they downplayed them so the general public wouldn't buy them all up. Like, you know, that's not great, you know. And so if you look at, I mean, we say like they had a good intention, maybe they're trying to save it for like the medical personnel and that, which I thought needed it more. Um, and that's very fair. But the sort of the, the decision to, you know, again, maybe lies too strong a word, you know, so I'm not trying to increase conspiracy theories on the right either necessarily, but, you know, but certainly shade the truth because you think it's good and then wonder why the public doesn't believe you six months later. Um, you know, I think that was, was, was bad, you know? So I, I think there, there are elements of it around communications that were, you know, pretty poor and then I think there was a lot of with the politicians in particular, the sort of hypocrisy, right? You know, of you know, you guys need to put masks on when, once everybody kind of fell in line behind the mask and you're killing grandma if you don't. But I'm gonna have a beach party with two hundred of my rich friends and we're not gonna wear masks at all. And uh, so I think there were things like that, you know, that you know could have been handled differently. And I think in general, all that messaging that sort of evolved and i was exposed i i live in left spaces so i saw more of it on the left i'm sure there were you know equally bad examples on the right but you know the sense of you know you either need to get in line with mass or vaccines or you're like not just wrong but you're an evil person um it was you know again maybe i don't know if catastrophic is the right word but it was certainly going to be a thing that predictably was going to make the quote unquote other side more resistant rather than less resistant um, to this sort of stuff, you know. And in that sense, you know, is it outsized to think that maybe a different tact could have led to at least somewhat better use of masks and vaccines? I think so, you know. So I think that in some cases, the the, the decisions people are making were good faith, maybe more, more sometimes than others, but that nonetheless, even trying to do the right thing, people made mistakes that, you know, made the made the pandemic worse. And I don't think that's necessarily, and, and maybe because I focused on the U.S., it seemed like I was picking on the U.S. That really wasn't my intention, because I think we can look at things like, you know, I'm, I'm not super familiar with the politics in New Zealand, Australia, but I think they kind of like locked a lot of their own citizens out of their out of the countries and forbade them from returning. Is that am I misconstruing that? Uh, yeah, like at, at times, yeah, yeah. It was it was pretty difficult to enter Australia uh, yeah. at times. Um, not because you were locked out specifically, but there was just a lot of planes were just getting cancelled because yeah. they had set. I, I believe, like, we're just setting very tight limits on the number of people that could come in, and it was a very weird, poorly organized situation where people yeah. were literally they would have a ticket, they'd have already paid for a ticket, they would show up to the airport. And then find out yeah. that their plane had been cancelled, which you would think shouldn't necessarily happen. We should have the information systems to not, if if there's a set limit of how many people can enter the country, yeah. then that's how many planes people are buying tickets for, like around the world. But it was just, yeah, a little bit, um, a little bit chaotic. Um, I mean, Australia, like, I mean, these countries did pretty well like, like if you look at like death rates between australia new zealand and the u.s there's like you know mm. a whole bunch of people in australia that are alive today that w probably wouldn't be 
if they those countries hadn't locked down and had such yeah. strong restrictions. But then, you know, there's questions about, obviously about competing values um, and stuff like that. But I, when I read this chapter, I was kind of like, I don't know. I was like, is he being a bit, a bit harsh on people like the CDC and stuff like that for some like, you know, admitted sort of mistakes or missteps, but not harsh enough on the people that are like seizing on them and using them for political purposes. Right. So like I, when I think of COVID and when I think of things like masks and things like um, conspiracy theories around vaccines and stuff like that, like this, there's just this huge imbalance in how irrational kind of the administration or mm. um, I guess like progressives or Democrats were and people on the other side who I think just acted like incredibly irrationally for all the reasons sort of in your book. Yeah. But, you know, I would argue just a much more, a much more harmful way, right? Like, so the, you know, there's this sort of stereotypical, progressive who got quite irrational and just wanted to like shut down the schools and like keep them shut down. Right. Uh, And that's like calmed children and stuff like that. Like uh, there's evidence that there's these huge gaps in learning because kids just couldn't go to school, even though it probably would have been relatively safe uh, to open the schools because it's just not a very uh, deadly disease for kids. Um, And so, yeah, this person has like, I guess, you know, it was so hard because like the evidence was so unclear and stuff like that, but they're sort of acting on this like precautionary principle and you can certainly go too far in that regard. But when I contrast that in my mind with the sort of stereotypical conservative person who is like looking up YouTube videos (laughs) to like back up their like newfound skepticism of vaccines and like, and it is just now part of a whole community that's like anti-vaccine um, for really no good reason. Like it was Trump was in power. He was like boasting about developing the vaccine. Like it didn't yeah. have to become it didn't have to become a culture war issue. But I think it's much more the fault of the right than the left that it did. I mean, I guess you can sort of point at the annoying people with those yard signs saying, well, we believe <laughs> we believe science uh, and I liked the section in your book that was like, you know, anybody with that sign probably doesn't actually know much about science. But yeah, it, for me, I read that section and I was like, hmm, a little bit too centrist for my liking. Like, I really think <laughs> in this case, yeah, there's a there's an imbalance of 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 sort of irrationality and blame yeah. that should be. Well, I think. Allocated. That- yeah, there, I have a couple of thoughts in response to that. Now, fair point. I think I think you know I, I appreciate your comments. Uh, I think there are you know a couple points. This is, is one. I think that most people, or, or sort of the insight I've had, perhaps over the last ten years, put it that way, is that most people, or or a lot of people, maybe even most people, is too unkind. A lot of people on both left and right establish their beliefs not because of what the data says, but it's simply because of what other people on the left and right around them are saying. So in other words, we tend to conform our beliefs to what those in our social universe reward us for for believing in. So if you take an issue like climate change, we'll take it out of COVID for a second, take it like climate change, right? The 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 geo or people on the right, I was gonna say the GOP, but the people on the right tend to be climate change skeptics. 
people on the left tend to be climate change believers. I would put myself in that latter camp. Um, I'm both on the left and I do worry about climate change. Um, but I don't know anything about climate change, <laughs> you know, or at least I'm not a climate, you know, I'm not a climate scientist. I talk a little bit about climate change in the book, but I'm not a, I'm not an expert in that particular area. So what, where do I get what I know about it from, from other people on the left, whether that's left news, left academics, people around me, you know? So I think we have to understand that I'm sort of both sides against where you got, I'm going to annoy you with more centrism, I'm afraid. Um, but, you know, both sides establish their beliefs based upon sort of like social unity, you know, rather than on facts and on data, or that tends to be at least a thread in human consciousness that we have to be alert to, um, you know, at, at, at any rate. And what happens, of course, is when we see the right establish their set of beliefs and the left establish their set of beliefs, we tend to assume that, well, our side is righter than their side is, right? That's the whole my side bias, you know, sort of thing. Now, the reality is sometimes it's true. One side is more right than the other one. So we might say in climate uh, climate science, the left is right and the right is wrong. I, I believe that. Um, but that's luck <laughs> more than anything else, you know. People on the left aren't right because they know anything. They just happen to be lucky, you know, in a way. Their their attitudes are not formed in data. They're formed in social unity. And what happens for policymakers that I think that they need to be alert to is they need to be a bit more alert to that phenomenon. And, you know, to the extent they can, to be aware how easily things can become partisan, even if it's dumb, it is dumb. You know, but they have to be alert to that. And the thing, if you think about like the paranoia on the right, because, you know, you're right about like the vaccine conspiracies and all this other kind of stuff are really quite ridiculous. Um, what you don't want to do as a policymaker is if people are paranoid that you're lying to them, you don't want to lie to them because that ends up giving fuel to their paranoia. So if you have a group of people who are their priors are that you are, you know, they are concerned that um, you're going to hide the truth about the disease, is mortality, it's the effectiveness of vaccines, the side effects, and so on and so forth. You don't want to fuel that paranoia by lying to them about anything, really, because it's just going to be evidence to fuel that. Now, you can say it on the right, too. If you have people on the left that are afraid that if you overthrow Roe versus Wade, that they're going to take away a bunch of other things, you know, you don't want to put laws on the books that like stop abortions in the case of like ectopic pregnancies or 10 year old children who've been raped or things like that. Right. Because that just adds evidence you know, that supports the other side's worst beliefs about you, you know. And so I think that's what's happening. So we can criticize the right. I mean, I think that the Republican reaction to the Dobbs case has, has been catastrophic, you know, I guess, you know, you could say uh, in a very different way. Yeah, I think they've handled it incredibly badly, you know. Um, but I do think that, you know, the, at least some of the decisions that were made by the CDC and Fauci and so on and so forth, I don't think they're bad people. You know, I'm not accusing them of bad faith. Mm -hmm. But I think their handling of the public was poor, in part because they may just not have seen it coming. You know, I mean, they just may not just been aware that this was something they had to worry about. Um, but I think that's kind of where things went wrong, you know. And, and I do think there are missed opportunities to sort of like think psychologically about the messaging and how best to get the messaging across in as balanced a way possible. Uh, in order to convince as many people as possible about things like the importance of masking and vaccines and so on and so forth. Did that help or did that sort of address that? Yeah, kind of. I just, 
I wonder though. So like at one point in the book, you talked about, I think it might've been the CDC. Um, and there was a CDC director that came out and linked um, guns to, or like prevalence of guns in the U S to gun violence. And then Republican lawmakers mm-hmm. responded by shutting down research into, yeah. into gun violence. Yeah. Yeah. But then like you sort of do this thing where you're like, oh, and that, so that was, they shouldn't have done that. The the CDC person shouldn't have said that. And I, but I hear that anecdote and I'm just like, well, like you're sort of blaming them for this like politicized reaction on the part of the Republicans when it seems to me much more like, and I, and I, I don't know. I go back and forth on this because you, you could say, well, yeah, the Republican response to that was predictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then like, well, w- what are we saying? Like, we're not, we can't like the CDC, even if they believe that there's a large problem with gun ownership in the United States and it's causing like a lot of unnecessary death, whether they're not allowed to, not allowed to talk about that because of the inevitable irrational reaction on the part of the Republicans. I mean, I think like, well, it's not just that though. I mean, I think that the problem you know, with the CDC in that particular, this is going back to the 90s, you know, in that particular situation is a larger problem for social science that it's not, I think I think it's true that, you know, it was a predictable response on the part of the GOP and that the CDC should have been alert to that, perhaps responsible to it. I think that that's not the most important problem for me, though. I think the bigger problem is the soon as an organization like the CDC goes out on the limb of advocating for policy, in this case, for advocating for, say, higher gun control, whether they're right or wrong, they now have skin in the game. And that means that any science that now comes from that organization from that point forward, we can just look at the APA, the American Psychological Association, and their behavior around these issues, for instance, that now they've invested themselves not in a neutral database scientific, you know, I'm just giving you the data, but now they're invested in policy. Uh, that's And that's politics. And that means that, or to me, my concern is that any further science that's going to come from that organization, now that they're out in the limb, is going to be massaged in order to keep supporting that position. And that's exactly what the APA did with like video game violence. You know, that, you know, is not, you know, that is certainly a thing groups do, you know, put it that way. Uh, I'm not as intimately familiar with the CDC. So maybe you say it's unfair to accuse the CDC of the APA's misbehavior. Um, but I think that is actually the larger problem that, you know, I do believe, you know, maybe you would disagree with me and that's fine and others would as well. The scientists really do need to avoid being coming advocates and becoming policy, you know, prescriptors. Because as we begin to head down those roads, we now become ourselves sort of emotionally and politically invested in a particular goal. And that may actually blind ourselves to data that it increases our own biases. It blinds us to data that would actually challenge these previous positions that we've taken. Uh, both because we become emotionally invested in them, but also because we want to save face. You know, you just told Congress this thing was important. And then five years later, you say, well, whoops, we screwed up. It's not actually that important anymore. It, it's really hard to do that. Um, and, you know, I absolutely think that the Republican senators or Congress people did what they did for their own cynical self-interest. I am in no way accusing the Republicans of good faith behavior. <laughs> but, um, but, do I think it was a really, again, keep using the buzzword, catastrophic choice on the, on the on behalf of the CDC? Absolutely. I think it was an unwise choice, and I think we should learn from it. 
Uh, and even out of policy, it was scientifically unwise um, mm-hmm. for them to advocate uh, for a policy position. It's scientifically unwise for the APA to advocate for policy mm-hmm. positions. For any of us as individual scholars to have, you know, we're all human beings. We all have policies we want to see happen. But in our scientific lives, we need to do the best we can as human beings to remain as neutral. And the job of a scholar or a professional organization, in my opinion, should be to present data to policymakers so that policymakers can make the best decisions they they can. Uh, Once they step over the line of advocating for policy specifically, policy goes specifically, then I think they've ceased um, acting as a scientific organization and now are advocating, now are acting as an advocacy organization. Well, sounds like you're just trying to save tenure in Florida right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I work so, at a private university, so my mic. Right, 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 right. So, yeah. I so, can't. Like, wait, wait, wait. Before you put are you? That was a good transition, but um, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we even have time to to talk about any other topics. But I, I wanted to ask a quick question. Uh, I have actually two quick questions. So the first one is you gave a lot of recommendations, especially just now in our conversation about like what organizations should do and the scientists. And um, in the book, you talk a lot about like how. Uh, individual citizens, like when they're talking to other people, that a recommendation you would give is to um, bring up the data a lot, like, you know, mm-hmm. in, in a nice way, but, you know, like stick to the data. And I was wondering if you have read the the paper that came out of my lab, uh, led by Emily Kubin and others, um, on like facts versus experience. And there's it's like a multi-study paper on how People really don't want to hear facts. They don't want to hear the data, um, but they are very amenable to like people talking about their personal experiences that are related to a, a issue. And so that seems a little bit at odds with what you're advocating. Yeah. So I was just wondering, like, what your thoughts are on that? Yeah, that's a great question. Unfor- I have not read the paper, so unfortunately, I have not seen that. Uh, it wasn't on video games. I'm, I'm very. Um... <laughs> Parochial. Um, yeah, no, I, I think I mean what you're saying is probably true. I think people are more persuaded by anecdote than they are by data more easily, which is bad. Yeah, because <laughs> anecdotes are garbage. Um, you know, um, so you know, I, I I think anecdotes are the devil's road to misinformation. You know, for the most part. So I think it's true that people are more persuaded by them. I would not encourage actual scientists to rely on them however i mean i get it sometimes in a talk you can say hey as an example of course i use examples in the book but you know you, you kind of use an example here and there but but that shouldn't really be like the key element of your of your argument i don't think that um you know, at least in my experience like if you think of like the video game thing i mean certainly like you know the change in the tenor of the, of the debate is due to lots of different things so first off all the old people died off right you know so that the, the audience just kind of went away you know for the video game panic you know uh, there are anecdotes sort of situations like, you know, the, the, once Trump, as like we were talking about, sort of got on board with this, then all the liberals decided video games were you know, harmless as pie. Um, but I but I do think that like the repetition of data over and over in a polite, cordial way does have some sort of impact. 
um, you know, my gut reaction is that your lab mates or your, your uh, department mates are probably correct that on a short-term basis, anecdote is more powerful than data. Um, but that again speaks to biases and irrationality. You know, that's not good. That's not, that's not, that's not good news. You know, um, <laughs> um, the but what we need to do, I think, is to just keep repeating the data and data over and over again. And I, I tell people that, like, just sort of learning from the video game experience, it takes yeah, fifteen to twenty years. That's what you're looking at. So if you think, you know, as I do, for instance, that the 2020 narrative on race and policing got things like terribly wrong, um, you're looking at a 15 to 20 year period of trying to get the data out in front of people again and again and again and again, um, because what they're seeing is news media anecdotes, right? And those news media anecdotes are very powerful. Um, and it takes a while for them to realize that news media are cherry picking the anecdotes um, that support a particular narrative and not telling you about the anecdotes that don't support that narrative. You know, so you have to keep working over and over again. It's the bullshit asymmetry factor, right? You know, so it does require more work, uh, but I do think it's work that's worth investing in. Okay, mm. that makes sense. And then uh, my last question is: in writing this book about all these moral panics. Um, are you trying to create a moral panic about moral panics? <laughs> There's moral panics everywhere. <laughs> um, no, I hope not. <laughs> Actually, I don't think the world's like worse than, than, than other points in history. I mean, I think in general, if you were going to try to, even with all the irrationality of the present moment, if you're going to try to pick another point in history to be born you know, whether you're white, black, male, female, you know, gay, you know, trans, whatever, the 21st century United States is a pretty good point in history to pick. You know, uh, I, I don't think you could pick any place else. People always have these like grass is greener ideas that, well, ancient Greece was really open to gay people. No, they weren't. <laughs> they, you know, they're not, they, didn't have, they didn't have gay marriage, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Um, you know, uh, so what's really better now than the 90s, though? Yeah, it's better. Than, yeah, certainly. Well, what I'm saying, like 21st century, you know, is probably, uh, yeah, it doesn't mean that. We no, what's what's better? I, I'm 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 pushing back. Like I I I'm not. I think the nineties. I think we was, reached the peak at the nineties. Nineties was the peak of uh, human experience. You think I, the 90s? I might agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Were you guys uh, like kids or teenagers in the nineteen nineties? Yeah, I was a yeah. teenager. Yeah, I, I, I would say I agree with you, except I would put it in the eighties. But um, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> The 80s were pretty cool too. Yeah. Like, but the mo movies and music, I like to me, I think peaked in the 80s and 90s, and nothing, nothing really that cool has has happened since then. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Like, this is actually, I've gotten really interested in this hypothesis about like um, creativity sort of slowing down, and there's like a lot of potential explanations for it i mean sort of devouring yeah. podcasts and stuff like that but i do think it's kind of true like you go like the 30 years from the 60s to the 90s it was like we we had everything from like the beatles up until you know nirvana and hip-hop and yeah. if you just look from the 90s to now it's another 30 years and the rate of change and innovation like in almost all kinds of pop culture and art and and literature and stuff like that you really can't find much now that like you could show somebody from the nineties and they'd be like, Whoa, what is this? Yeah. You know, whereas like there's all this stuff in the nineties that you could have shown somebody from the sixties and they'd be like, wait, this is not, this yeah. is not television. Yeah. This is not music. 
There's not. Well, I, I, I tell you, if you, uh, I'd rather play Elden Ring than a '90s video game. So uh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know though, because in the '90s you didn't really know. Like I remember my friends got Doom when it came out, yeah. and they're like, like walking around th- these boxes, uh, and they thought it was like the most amazing thing ever. Yeah, so yeah. like the subjective experience is yeah, probably yeah. pretty equivalent. I mean, if you could remember Elden Ring and we transported you back to the '90s and you had to play Doom, yeah, you'd probably be bummed. But in the nineties, we didn't we didn't know we didn't have the counterfactual. Yeah. Anyway, Rachel has to go. We're out of time. We didn't yeah. get to talk about the masturbation paper really, except for my lame joke at the start. But that's okay because you're here to promote a book, not to talk about yeah, yeah, yeah. some some Swedish weirdo um, you know, <laughs> pretending to do yeah. research and just yeah, that was weird week in academia, man. It was a rough moment for quality. I mean, I know, and I'm actually quite sensitive to, you know, I, I think there is some really good qualitative research out there, um, but this was not it. Uh, and I think, you know, in terms of this like quantitative versus qualitative debate, this was a real, <laughs> real hit. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, remind people this is just an anecdote and like yeah. you know yeah. it's just one paper so. yeah. well i think it was also the like academics who like knee jerk went and defended it on like twitter and that kind of stuff you know at least yeah. Initially. yeah so i think that also may be added to it a little a little bit but i think it's also specific to this area of auto ethnography i think which you know, mm. I, I mean, maybe this is my own knee-jerk reaction, but if I've, you know, and maybe there's some really good papers in there, so, you know, I'd love to see them if there are, but it really doesn't mm. sound like anything remotely. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, Dorian uh, Abbott must be able to defend it. Like, you know, we had him on the podcast, and he yeah. is in favor of, like, absolute academic freedom, like absolute freedom of speech. I remember when you were on the podcast, you weren't. Uh, and you kind of sort of said, no, it depends on the Overton window, which I actually think I disagree with. Like, I do think we can probably find cases where the Overton window squeezes out reasonable, reasonable positions. Like, and actually there was an academic cancellation, uh, uh, from the conservative side of this researcher who I think was doing, you know, pretty okay work on pedophilia. Um, and they were trying to uh, promote like a bit more sort of, um, not tolerance of pedophilia, but less stigmatization of people who are born that way, uh, promoting like the phrase minor attracted person. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, anathema to like conservatives who are just like, Oh my God, they're yeah. trying to normalize pedophilia, they're groomers and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, we, we, we should probably have you back. On the podcast <laughs> like, <laughs> I, yeah. I feel like the, we could talk to you for a long, long time. Um, yeah. but, uh, not tonight. Cause uh, yeah, we agree about the academic freedom. I think in most cases, yeah, we, you know, mm. I think, you know, this, 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 this particular paper was an edge case where mm. I would assume what the gentleman was engaged in is close to illegal and uh, you know the consumption of child pornography they are just drawings yeah yeah, but i think in the united states even the drawings are i mean i'm not a lawyer so i may i may be wrong Mm. with this but i think it it may not be legal (laughs) i don't think it was illegal in the u.s but i think it may be illegal in where Mm. he is like switzerland or germany or somewhere he's He's from sweden it's definitely outside of most people's overton window <laughs> tell you what though i mean that's like that's like the like punk rock of academia right there like i mean i i haven't seen anything like that that just completely took 
academia by storm. Yeah. Just from this one paper that he wrote himself, just based on this one. Thing. Like, I mean, what a, yeah, like what a cultural phenomenon. Um, yeah, like, I mean, Rachel, let's, yeah, let's do another part about that because <laughs> I think it was pretty fascinating. And I, yeah, I had so many jokes and I just wasn't quite sure. Like, no, because then there's uh, the pedophilia angle. I saw a lot of people joking about it. So I thought, like, this would probably be fine to, like, make a joke about but then i was like yeah. nah it's not it's not quite safe so it's I, better yeah. than uh like the, there's one joke that i saw i've probably seen it like 20 different times from different people about how this is a seminal paper uh. <laughs> like uh, <laughs> yeah. like the first time it was like maybe a little amusing uh. but everyone thinks it's like they're a joke and yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway. oh man well, anyway yeah 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 uh, so yeah let me let me know. Let me know about Dungeons and Dragons. I'm I'm curious. I, I have a feeling I'm going to be more of an intuitive player than a like heavy reader. Yeah, which is okay. probably going to make me a really bad player who can be easily easily <laughs> killed, <and laughs> vanquished. <laughs> but uh, who knows? Who knows? Just roll the twenty sided die, and you know maybe I get lucky. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, All right. Rachel, have fun in South Carolina. Chris, enjoy the last vestiges of summer. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I'll hopefully speak to you both soon. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, guys. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Absolutely. Bye. Bye. Take care. Okay, so we'll stop the recording. You don't have to hang up. But, yeah, um, yeah, thanks so much, Chris. I think, you know, probably for the best that we didn't uh, waste too much of the pod. <laughs> yeah, I feel that. like we talked a lot about social media and that, that wasn't paper. even, like, the main part of the book, but, like... Uh, yeah, it was, was interesting. It was though. Yeah, I, I liked interesting. it. I liked it. I thought, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is the book like published? It's going to be out in November. Yeah. So it's, okay, uh, we probably should have said that. Oh, maybe you should like. Oh yeah. yeah. Add, add, add a thing at the end of the, you know. <laughs> no, I'll just leave this part in the <laughs> So coming out in November, catastrophe. What's the subheading? How good people make bad psychology of how. Good people make bad situations worse. Something like that. <laughs> yeah.